Welcome to the Beyond X podcast. I'm your host, Mahir Ibrahimi, and every week I speak to leading industry experts, trailblazers, and market leaders, where we discuss the key topics of our time in detail and have a deep dive conversation on areas like sustainability, technology, urban planning and city design, health and fitness, and more. In today's episode of Beyond Sustainability, I spoke with Jeffrey Beyer. In the first part of our discussion, we unpacked the importance of decarbonization and went over one of the key enablers for the transition to low carbon resources, finance. We expanded on green financing mechanisms, the public sector's role in financing sustainable projects, retail banking and the financial sector's role in green financing, and touched on reducing energy consumption for buildings and the industrial sector. In the second part of our discussion, we delve deeper into the specific technologies and implementation modalities for decarbonization, including carbon capture utilization and storage, or CCUS, hydrogen and the role it can play in decarbonizing the industrial and transportation sectors, how the electrical grid will adapt to renewable energy supplies, AI and IoT's role in the decarbonization journey, and atmospheric carbon removal. The different discussion points are all timestamped throughout the episode, so you can freely move around as you see fit. Jeffrey is a sustainability strategist with international expertise across climate and energy policy, corporate strategy, green finance, as well as clean tech innovation and acceleration. He is the founder and managing director of Zest Associates, a UAE-based sustainability consultancy. Jeffrey specializes in forming new programs and initiatives to accelerate solutions like hydrogen, energy efficiency, renewable energy, and low-carbon transport. He also helps highly innovative clean tech companies find investment, join venture partners, and new clients in the Middle East region. Jeffrey has launched innovation programs for utility providers like the UK's National Grid and multilaterals like the World Bank and International Climate Fund. He has helped establish national centers of excellence for renewables and energy efficiency, including the UK Offshore Wind Innovation Hub, National Renewable Energy Catapult, and the South African Private Sector Energy Efficiency Program. He has authored landmark studies on financing a green transition in the Middle East and accelerating the clean hydrogen industry in the UAE, and was instrumental in founding the UK's first cleantech venture capital fund as a public-private partnership, now capitalized with £100 million. He is a serial entrepreneur, having founded climate consultancies in the UK and the UAE, as well as a clean tech R&D company that uses plants to remediate mercury-contaminated soil, cleaning the plants and turning them into biogas. He holds undergraduate degrees in economics and psychology and a master's in environmental change and management from Oxford University. Thank you so much for making the time, and it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I want to start off talking about how you got into things before we get into the technical nitty-gritty side of things. What got you into sustainability? I know that it's something you actually studied, but how did you get into it? What was the evolution of it, if you will, for you? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a winding story. I've, I've always been interested in sustainability. I, I don't know. I, I did a lot of camping when I was younger. I was in cool. outdoors a lot. I was in Boy Scouts, so you're always <laughs> in nature. Um, so I had a connection to nature. Um, I'm from Canada originally, so there's a lot of really beautiful nature there. And we, when I was studying at my undergrad, I actually started studying engineering, so aerospace engineering. I ended up switching into economics and psychology. But during my university period, I joined an organization called Engineers Without Borders mm-hmm. Canada, and, and it was an international development organization. Through that, I did some overseas volunteer work in Ghana, in northern Ghana and Africa, lived for a number of months with a host family there doing work with the Ministry of Food and Agriculture. After I left that 
period, there was a huge drought all across West Africa. And then my family and everyone I knew had to plant their emergency seed to survive. And then there was a massive flood. So everything got wiped out again. So everybody ended up relying on UN food aid. So I was really focusing initially on my career in a human development or international development perspective. After that experience, I recognized that without a stable climate, those on looking to pull themselves up a ladder of development mm-hmm. really need this baseline of just a normal weather patterns and predictable weather to do that. I'd also been involved in a lot of international activities. So I was actually, I joined the UN Youth for Climate Movement. I went to COP13 as my first COP railing against wow. the Canadian government at the time because <laughs> they were not doing enough on, in the environment. I studied environmental economics as, as one of my electives. So I always had this kind of interest in the back of my mind and recognized from an early age that climate change was going to be one of the defining issues of our time. So if I was going to invest my life and career in something with impact, this was the thing to do. Interesting. Yeah, I joined uh, an environmental consultancy after I finished my undergrad, but I didn't really have an academic grounding in that, so decided to go back to university, which was where I studied my master's in environmental change and management at Oxford, and and then con- continued my career in the environmental space. Very interesting. Yeah. That's a good story. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I, it's funny you say this because one of the other people I spoke to, Giancarlo, he was also mentioning that he grew up in Florida in the mangroves. And that's the reason he got into not sustainability so much, but really his work is sustainable cities. And it's so funny how that works when you go out to nature at an early age, especially, and you see what it is and how beautiful it is and what it can do. It shapes you. And then obviously your experience in a different way, having to see what happened in, in Africa with a drought and a flood yeah. shortly after. It's not a good thing, but it sets the stage in a way, right? It's very influential. Um, and the other thing about this subject area that I think is interesting, I was good at a lot of different subjects in school. You're good at English and also physics and math and biology and stuff. There's not a lot of careers that have this yeah. whole breadth of capability and so need. True. Sustainability requires this policy dimension. It needs behavior change. Economics is super important. I think understanding the technical underpinnings of some technologies is really important. So having this breadth of interest areas, I think, is well suited for someone to study sustainability because it integrates across Mm -hmm. all these different areas. Yeah, that's another aspect of why I think it's a good place to be. You get to wear different hats. I I like that. Yeah. You've set the stage perfectly for me here because I wanted to ask you, why is this important? What is this discussion important? Why should we decarbonize and why is the energy transition important, Uh, especially as it relates to the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals, both SDG 13, but also SDG 7, which doesn't get looked into as much. You started the foundations of answering this, but why is this important? What does our effort in this space mean for the short and longer term future? Sustainability, just from a very <laughs> like practical, is it practical? Just from a very normal, intuitive, I suppose is the word, from a very intuitive perspective, sustainability just makes sense. Right. Having a society that is unsustainable is inherently not going to end <laughs> well. You need to have a sustainable approach to everything in life. And I think that this linear model we've developed where you extract resources, you produce things, you throw things away, it doesn't really make sense in the long term. And ultimately, circularity is very akin to sustainability. And I think those two things from a resource efficiency perspective are are quite intertwined. Sustainability also has a lot more than an environmental dimension. It can actually get very broad when you look at the social, the economic and the environmental components of sustainability, there's a lot to consider. So it crosses gender equity, social inclusion, a whole bunch of things. And that's why we see the SDGs as 17 different sustainable development goals, right? It covers a huge swath of different areas. And it's actually interesting to think of the SDGs because they're not the first time the UN came up with these 
concepts, right? In the year 2000, there was the Millennium Development Goals, which were the precursor to the SDGs. There was, I think, eight of them. And it actually shows the degree to which society has become a lot more sophisticated since 2000. Um, the SDGs are a lot more smart, specific, measurable, and so on. And I think that the Millennium Development Goals set the stage for the SDGs, but didn't have the kind of rigor behind them that mm -hmm. I think the SDGs do. And the SDGs really set a, a helpful international framework around how are we going to approach societal development? What do we as a, a globe think are the important things for us to really work towards? And then how do we set those targets and achieve them in, in an actionable, practical way? SDG 13 and 7, so it's the climate one and the energy one, which includes affordable energy, not mm -hmm. just clean, but also affordable. Obviously, a huge interplay between those. Yeah, I think SDG 7, when we're talking about affordable and clean energy, those two ambitions or targets, I think, used to be in, in competition with each other. Right. And I'm really heartened to see that a lot of the innovation work that's happened over the past decades, but especially over the past 10 or 12 years, has made the affordability side of the energy trilemma a lot less of an issue. The energy trilemma is like a triangle where you have affordability on one vertice, security of supply, and then environmental impact. And those three things, when the energy trilemma was released, EIC, I think they released the energy trilemma in the past, and they talked about this tension between those three different vertices and how if you wanted to focus on the environment, you had to give up right. affordability. If you wanted to really make it cheap, they had to be fossil fuel driven. And those three things are no longer really in competition, which I think is really exciting for the energy transition because we're going to see this emergence of low carbon technologies really being the cheapest and also the most secure. That's a good development for SDG 7 in particular. And what would you say is the reason for that? Is it just that solar PVs are cheaper and implementing wind projects is cheaper, so it's easier to do? Is the technology easier to implement? What's brought us 20 years down the line to where we are now? There's been a huge amount of innovation. So technically, we've just learned how to make these machines a lot more cheaply. Mm -hmm. There's been a massive amount of vertical integration as well in the system. And what that means is instead of having silicon producers be totally separate from people who manufacture PV cells and then those who build them all being different parties, especially in China, we've seen a real vertical integration right. where the silicone miner is the same guy that produces the panels, the same guy that installs them. So that just leads to a lot of efficiencies. So there's definitely a technology development component. There's the whole thing around learning by doing. You can really save money and time. If you just get experience doing something, mm -hmm. you can improve efficiency that way. We've just seen economies of scale grow enormously. So when you build a bigger factory, you can tend to produce the output of the factory a lot more cheaply. Um, so there's been a lot of reasons for that change. Makes sense. Okay. I want to touch on the implementations. I want to touch on how this is being used in different sectors. But I think first, it's important to talk about a key enabler, which is finance. In my experience, a lot of times when you're talking about these problems, affordability, as you mentioned, it's easier now, but it's still one of the key limiters. People say, okay, we want to do this, but we don't have the finances. Uh, we want to do this, but there's not enough investment for this specific thing to happen. And it could be a micro scale, small single industry company, or even a residential retrofit, for example, or it could be country scale, even a continental scale projects. So when we're talking about uh, Financing, there's a lot of different mechanisms and a lot of different incentives and policies. So obviously the Inflation Reduction Act was just passed in the U.S. It's 
going to be implemented soon. <laughs> There's a lot of things in mainland Europe, both on the EU block level and in the country level that are being implemented to finance these different types of projects, renewables, retrofits, whatever else you will. So what I wanted to do is first get your thoughts on just the overall side of this. What is green financing? What does it mean? Who is doing it? Who's getting the benefits of it? Who can make use of it? Uh, and then we can go okay. more into detail there. Yeah, finance is one of these key drivers. We've talked a bit about technology development. One of the things I think is actually the only bright spot in the latest IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, uh, the UN panel, the only bright spot in their most recent report was the fact that we actually have almost all of the technologies that we need to achieve 90% of our decarbonization goals. We don't have everything, like getting those last bits of very hard to abate sectors is challenging, but for the most part, we've sorted it out from a technology perspective. The real question now is around how do you deploy those technologies? And that comes down to finance, as well as other things. But finance is the big driver. I think green finance essentially refers to any kind of product or service or investment that supports sustainable and environmentally friendly economic activities. It means like money going into something that's reducing environmental impact or leading to the betterment of the environment. It's like green bonds, sustainable bonds, responsible investment strategies, green finance frameworks, green taxonomies, all of these things relate to and support the green finance ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of players, right? So you've got big multilateral funds like the Green Climate Fund or the Global Environment Facility. Those are run by the World Bank and multilateral organizations. At a national level, there's a bunch of green finance programs, green finance frameworks. The UAE actually has a green finance framework that was released, I think, in 2018, maybe 16. And they've advanced quite a bit in terms of developing the infrastructure around their green finance frameworks and regulations. Companies can borrow money from capital markets and put them towards green projects. There are big funds that raise money from insurance companies or pension companies or just any kind of fund manager. And their remit is specifically to invest in green projects. <laughs> doesn't matter who you are, there's a bit of green finance for you right. somewhere in the ecosystem. The thing that ties them all together is, that, is what this money is being used for. And that money is being used for investments into something that reduces the environmental impact of living. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that there's another class of investments that's coming out called sustainability-linked bonds and sustainability-linked loans. The key part is the linked, so it's not just a green bond or sustainability bond. It's a linked one. And the difference about a linked asset versus a non-linked one is that companies that raise money for a sustainability-linked bond, for example, don't actually have to use the money that they raise to invest in specifically something green. The only criteria is that they need to have set meaningful climate change targets or SDG, sustainability targets, ESG targets. They have to have set those targets, and that's it. You can raise money on the capital markets and invest in business as usual activities as long as you've set a meaningful sustainability target. Okay. So what this does is brings a lot of people and companies who otherwise would feel excluded from the climate and sustainability conversation. It brings them into the fold by allowing them to raise money on using a sustainability-linked instrument without having necessarily to put that specific pot of money that's raised into a green project. As long as they're on a trajectory to improve their sustainability, then that's enough. So is that sort of indirectly helping them become more sustainable through... Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So boy, oh boy, everyone's so excited about this, right? This market has taken off like wildfire. It's bigger than the green bond market. Within, I think the first sustainability-linked asset was listed in 2017. Within three or four years, it got bigger than the green bond market. Wow. 
Good news, bad news. I don't know, man. I think it's super risky, actually. I feel like, yeah, <laughs> I'm not so... When you were saying it, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how... No, honestly, it's really risky. So I think that this is a huge asset class. It's something that's going to really dominate the green finance conversation in the next little while. I think it comes with some really material risks. First of all, what is a meaningful target? Right. Mean, meaningful according to who? Um, and that's the thing. Who manages that? Nobody. So right now, oh. it's a self-described meaningful <laughs> target. It's right. not linked to something like, for example, there's something called SBTI, right? It's the Science-Based Targets Initiative, SBTI. They describe what it means to have a meaningful target according to the climate science. So if you have a emissions reduction target in your company that is SBTI aligned, it means that like by, by 2050, for sure, you're going to be net zero and probably before that, because in order to achieve our climate change targets, there's science that backs it up, right? Mm -hmm. That's where these targets come from. So, and uh, who break this down for me? How does it work? You go to a company and say, "Okay, this is what I want to do. This is my my plan is give me some money." <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, yeah, it, it's, it's almost like a self-reporting, almost voluntary disclosure okay. type thing. So, yeah, the first risk is like meaningful. Like, what does meaningful mean? I think the second thing is, and there are penalties involved. But if you fail to achieve your targets, there's no strict penalty. There's a penalty, mm. but it's not very strict. The purpose of raising this finance is that you're supposed to be able to raise it with a lower interest rate. That's what motivates companies to list these products. Anyway, but the, the penalty is low. There's a whole bunch of issues with sustainability-linked financing, but I think it's important to bring into the conversation because it is something that's growing so quickly and that people seem excited about because it has the word sustainable in it, but it's really open for, I think, abuse and risk without some kind of more clear structure. Yeah, you just made me think of green coal and let's not go there, <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Is there anything else on green financing? Is there any other types or? There's tons of types. Give me a few more. The ESCO model is obviously another one. We've had a conversation on this already on the pod, but what kind of role do you think that's going to have? ESCO? I think ESCOs, they're such an elegant model. Mm -hmm. I'm, I love ESCOs. I did a big piece of work uh, in Turkey around helping to define what a super ESCO could be. And I believe you've spoken with Stéphane Chantil, who, who used to be ahead of uh, the Etihad ESCO, which is a super ESCO by definition. In Dubai, and he also helped set up the one in Abu Dhabi. So shout out if you haven't seen the episode, <laughs> <laughs> check it out. <laughs> no, ESCOs are great. And I actually met Stéphane probably 10 years ago when I was doing this piece of work. He was a leader, a real pioneer in this space. And I was really interested in it because it is a really elegant way to invest in energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. Energy efficiency is such a challenging thing to deploy. We talked about lots of technical solutions being out there, but then not getting financed. Energy efficiency is like the classic, like black, I don't know what you call it, black swan, or just like something that like never really works out. Black sheep, I guess is what you right. call it. And you always wonder like, why is this market not taking off? These investments make sense. Um, and it saves you money. In the long term, it saves you money. And even in the medium term or even short term, yeah, there's yeah. so many ways that it saves you money, but people aren't interested. And this is where ESCOs really knock down those barriers to take it upon themselves to really manage the energy efficiency of a building or of an asset. And they're dedicated and have the real expertise and can raise finance to do that. No, I think ESCO models are a really intelligent, elegant way of raising money and just aligning incentives. A lot of times incentives between a building owner and an occupier and a bank mis are misaligned. And ESCOs bring all of those incentives under the same banner and, yeah, can raise money to invest in energy efficiency projects. 
Perfect. I want to come back to this in a bit, yeah, but sure. I think let's go full circle on the green financing first. Yeah. I mentioned government policies and public initiatives. Obviously, super escos in the Middle East are usually government funded. So yeah. in, in UAE, in Dubai, and Abu Dhabi, in Saudi, they're all publicly backed. Yeah. But of course, they can exist privately as well. But in general, when we're talking really large scale investment in sustainability. It usually comes on the government level. I mentioned the IRA. There's a lot of policies in the EU and Europe. Canada obviously has quite a few to varying effects, let's say. What are your thoughts on these? Do you think the government and public sector really need to play a big role? Is there some examples of the ones I just mentioned or other ones that you think are really good examples? Is there some that won't really go far enough. What are your thoughts on this? The public sector is absolutely responsible in a huge way for mobilizing money in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I, I think that like everything, we're just this is a real this is an emergency, right? The climate change is a genuine emergency, mm-hmm. and and I it's difficult to appreciate that sometimes when you're just going about your daily life and you yeah. see everything happening normally around you. But this is becoming more and more challenging to actually achieve these targets, these reduction ambitions, and this like massive economic transformation that we're looking for. It requires a huge amount of money. The returns are there. The yeah. the costs of inaction are much greater, but it just means that we need to reorient our economic system in a way that deploys money towards those low carbon yeah. solutions and removes it from those high emitting areas. And currently, there is no price on carbon for most places. So there is this lack of an economic motivator to move money away from those carbon intensive activities towards low carbon activities. Mm-hmm. So in the absence of that market mechanism, you need to fill that gap with policy. And that's where the government's responsibility comes in. The governments have a responsibility not only to finance low carbon things, but to put in the, the policies and regulatory frameworks to to channel the money that's going to be spent anyway on certain services towards those ones that are lower impact, lower carbon. For example, countries need electricity. Mm-hmm. And without a price on carbon, in some cases, high emitting electricity can be cheaper than the low one. Right. And that's not right. That, that shouldn't happen. And I think if we were to integrate the cost, the social cost of carbon into the emitting electricity source, then the, t- the scales get tipped uh, towards the low carbon solution. And when I talk about the social cost of carbon, this is essentially where the idea of a carbon tax comes into play. Like historically, we've had a situation where companies, organizations, individuals can emit carbon as if it was a cost-free action. When we know that the buildup of that carbon in the atmosphere creates devastation environmentally, and we're seeing that manifest with kind of insurance payouts every year going higher and higher, huge disasters and unquantifiable challenges in terms of human suffering and so on. There's this massive social cost of carbon, and quantifying that in a dollar term is precisely where a carbon tax fits. People argue that the carbon tax isn't the most efficient way of reducing emissions because it penalizes every ton of carbon equally. A cap-and-trade system, which allows actors to find the lowest cost of reductions and avoid reducing the most expensive ones for now. You can trade the cheap ones for the expensive ones Mm -hmm. and get a more efficient outcome. So there's this contrast between effectiveness and efficiency sometimes. So a carbon tax is super effective. A cap-and-trade system because of its administrative challenges and issues around pricing can be less effective but more efficient. The point is that a government is required to take some action on either way you price carbon. That's one area. Mm -hmm. I think in general, and I actually wrote a big report on financing a green transition in the Middle East. It was funded by HSBC and delivered with the Mohan Bemrashid School of Government. There we looked at, specifically in the Middle East, these different mechanisms to use public money 
in a way that mobilized private sector capital towards sustainable investments. And I broke that down into a couple of different categories. So we looked at the enabling environment, so things that created the conditions for finance to flow, and also specific tools and mechanisms. So that was more direct investments in the sustainability from the public sector. I can go through all the different areas, but essentially it showed that a couple of key takeaways, the Middle East in general and the Gulf specifically, has an outsized opportunity to use public money to influence the financial conversation because public spending as a share of GDP in the region is quite high Mm -hmm. compared to international averages. Like in Saudi Arabia, I think 20% of the GDP is public money, which compared to 17% on average globally. So that gives the Saudi government this huge additional capability, this leverage point to use that public sector money to move money (laughs) from the private sector in the right direction. There's a lot of ways that the public sector can use its money to influence the way everyone else spends. So yeah, 100%, there's a huge opportunity. I guess it's a couple of areas in the Middle East that are interesting, especially is the size and strength of state-owned enterprises. Mm -hmm. So this is an area where many countries in the world don't have this state-owned commercial heft. Here, the government can instruct in some ways the state-owned enterprises to use their public remit to achieve sustainability goals that the government set. Sovereign wealth funds, likewise, are super powerful uh, in the region. They make up like 30 or 35% of the global size of sovereign wealth funds. They can also decide in their investment strategies to focus not only on commercial returns, but also on things that achieve social objectives, including environmental ones. Those are a couple of areas where the region has a particular advantage, I think. Okay. What are your thoughts on carbon offsets? It's getting a lot of negative press these days. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that they definitely have a role to play in achieving low carbon transition. There's a lot of projects that wouldn't be financed without the presence of carbon offsets. For those who don't know, you essentially pay into a project that reduces emissions and you can quantify the amount of emissions that are reduced. You can codify that in terms of saying I've reduced 10 tons of emissions, get 10 carbon credits, each worth one ton, uh, and then sell those on the market. Right now, voluntary credits are like $6 or six euros a, a credit. Ones in a mandatory market are closer to 20 or 40, I don't know, dollars a ton that goes up and down. Essentially, carbon credits and carbon offsets allow for a transfer of money from people who want to reduce their emissions into projects that otherwise wouldn't be viable without the revenues from carbon credits. It can really support otherwise uneconomic activities, which would just be left on the table Mm -hmm. as underutilized potential. So yeah, there's a role for carbon offsets. If you look at it from a totally global perspective and try and do the energy and the carbon balance, sometimes the emission reduction commitments of countries are based on their business as usual trajectory. So if a country is expected to grow its emissions by, let's say, 10,000 tons, but they do some activities that reduce that growth to only 5,000 tons, you can sell offsets for those 5,000 tons that weren't ever increased. Right. But that doesn't actually reduce the absolute volume of emissions in the atmosphere. It just makes sure that it didn't happen compared to a anticipated business-as-usual trajectory. So, I don't know. There's a bit of uncertainty around whether it's genuinely bringing down emissions. It's reducing the increase, <laughs> which is still important, right? So that's why I think Yeah, but a, in an absolute sense, it's different to a net reduction. That's right. It is. And, but I think that the point is that 
the business as usual trajectory is agreed and that would probably happen. I think what's critical is making sure that business as usual BAU trajectory is really accurate and not overstated. Because if you pretend that you're going to emit way more in 10 years than you do today, that gives you this huge wiggle room that isn't good for the environment, right? And that's not good either. Okay. What about green financing from the private financial institutions? So banks do some general green financing. There's some schemes even in the Middle East, I think, where, for example, you're... Uh, consumer goods like laundry, if you buy uh, an efficient one, you actually end up paying less than a non-efficient one, even though the dollar amount of a non-efficient appliance yeah. is usually lower. And uh, I think, first of all, I talked again about this with Stefan, but in the long term, people don't realize this. If you're paying for your own electricity at home, you will save in two, three years. If you're buying your own appliances, you will save very quickly the difference of a non-efficient compared to an efficient one. Yeah. The extra money you pay, you will save tenfold in the lifetime of that product. But people don't think about it because first of all, it's not really advertised, but also because people just don't think about it. They just yeah. want to buy the cheaper thing. So this is sort of meant to incentivize that. But what are the financial capabilities? I know it's it's much too micro for you, but what are the ones you know about? Yeah, this lifetime cost of ownership thing is one of the big issues around things that have a higher upfront capital cost, but lower operating costs. And this mm-hmm. is the issue that dogs a lot of sustainability products, including renewables. It's cheaper to build a gas plant if you don't consider like the, the upfront cost of yeah. the gas plant is, is yeah. relatively low yeah. compared to a wind or solar plant. But For with sure. wind and solar, it's free fuel, right? It's just sunshine and wind. Whereas with the gas plant, you're left to the vagaries of the international markets and you need to just keep paying for fuel for the whole lifetime of that plant. This whole upfront capital cost versus long-term operating costs and total cost of ownership is, is a challenge. And we need those types of financial mechanisms like this private banking solution to come into the field. Honestly, I think that there's a lot more that the retail banking sector and the financial sector in general could be doing to support this move towards sustainability. It's a bit of a controversial view, maybe, but I just think that every other sector has been required to completely transform the way it imagines itself to align with the low-carbon future. If you asked BMW or any car maker 20 years ago, we want you to sell cost-competitive cars, but you're not allowed to use gasoline anymore. That's totally untenable, right, from a traditional perspective. And this is why electric vehicles didn't take off for so long, because it's hard to do and required a huge amount of upfront investment and a total transformation of all their factories. And it was not an easy thing to just create an electric vehicle industry. But today, we're seeing this takeoff point of electric vehicles. And it's the same with industrial sector, producing no carbon cement or steel. Very hard to do without a lot of R&D and investment. But today we have low carbon neutral, carbon negative concrete through innovation, not widely taken, but it's there. We're building low carbon steel plants through direct reduction and using hydrogen and so on. The point is all these industries have had to totally reimagine the way yeah. that they do business. And I feel like the financial sector sometimes is comfortable saying we have a fiduciary responsibility, it's not our money to invest, we, we have certain yeah. risks we have to live with. And I think there's a lot more space for creativity there. I think there's a need to be a little bit more comfortable with risk. And I think in particular in developing and emerging economies where interest rates are very high for investment projects, there's another big opportunity for private capital in those markets to really be deployed And I recognize that risk is a real thing. I think actually in that particular case, looking at investing in developing emerging economies, this is where I think there's a huge opportunity for the public sector to play a role. A lot of the big green finance initiatives operate on the co-investment terms. So 
they'll pay for 10% of the asset and mobilize 90% of the money. But the risk is still there sometimes. So I think that there's a real opportunity for the public sector to manage the risk in particular and focus on guarantees, risk insurance, currency hedge, currency risk hedging. These things that a lot of private sector investors are really nervous about, focusing public money on those areas, I think could unlock a huge amount of private capital that is needed, especially to help build the technologies that allow developing and emerging economies to leapfrog into a clean future. I think especially now with the inflationary measures and the impact they're having on interest rates, if you just cap interest rates for green investments, for example, that could be a big thing that the federal banks and the national banks can do, right, to support these investments. Definitely. And central banks have been thinking about how they can play a role as well. I was speaking with somebody from BIS, it's the central bank of central banks, (laughs) and he explained that there's this concept they've developed called this green swan phenomenon, right? So you're familiar with the black swan phenomenon where you know no one thinks a black swan can exist until you actually see it and then it's a real thing. And this green swan issue is a little bit different in that we see the financial macroeconomic risks of climate change and we know they're going to happen, but we don't quite know when or how Mm. there's going to be huge disruption. And central banks try and be very policy impartial. They focus on macroeconomic stability. But this proposal is that climate change and environmental degradation are systemic risks to the financial sector. So there's a role for the central bank and all central banks to play in creating that macro environment that allows for investments to be directed towards these low carbon activities. And there are different ways to do that. You can risk weight different lending. So if you're lending towards a green project, it has a lower risk rating. Right. If you're lending towards a brown project, so, so to speak, it, it has a higher risk rating. And that creates this macro driver to avoid investments into polluting things mm-hmm. and encourage those ones to invest polluting things. And I think it's a step maybe some central bankers are uncomfortable taking because it does mean that central banks play in a more s- politically charged space as if this is a political issue. But it's yeah, one that I the, think the we safety need to of the planet is very much a political issue. <laughs> it's crazy to me that's the case, but it is uh, yeah. exactly. I, I think what I'm saying it, there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity for this type of innovation, and I think the financial sector has gotten away with playing around the edges a little bit for a while, and now it's time for them really to think really transformatively. And that's not to denigrate this sector. I think that they're doing a lot, but. They're now well, a bottleneck are, to really yeah. move forward. But know? I think that's the thing. It's I, I like what you said in the beginning. The indirect impact of sectors that are not really reliant on energy to some degree, or even the ones that are. For example, I just booked a flight recently, and I have the option to offset the carbon footprint of my flight with an investment by them. Now, I don't know what they're going to do. So that's always a question that I have in my mind is how regulated is that aspect of it? But the options there where you, you can buy something from... Uh, international shipping companies, and then they plant a tree to offset the carbon that's that, that they've impacted from your transaction. And I think those are the little things that you could do. I just feel like when we bring the consumer into the game, it's almost the same thing as recycling, right? We're saying, okay, it's your fault, so you need to deal with it. But really, it's the macro level things that need to be changed. So as much as I can offset my own flight, it makes more sense for the airline just to use more sustainable fuel and hydrogen and whatever else, which we'll obviously get into. But that's my thinking. It shouldn't be up to the consumer. It should be up to I totally agree. the user I, of I, the energy. I totally agree. There's this thought, I don't know if I read this somewhere, but 
essentially it's how Thomas Edison invented the light bulb by candlelight, right? It wasn't, <laughs> that, it wasn't that he wanted to use candles. And I think we're right. in a system, essentially. Right. It's like basically saying you're in a system that has a certain amount of technology so or whatever. Yeah. And you can try for this light bulb society, but we need to operate within the parameters that we're in now. Right. And it's about changing those parameters and yeah. not every individual has that control, right? You need a bigger entity like the government to influence that, yeah. Perfect. Okay, I think we've talked about the financial side of things enough. Let's talk about the implementation. I like what you said that 90% of the technology already exists, and I really want to tap into that a bit more to set the stage a bit. The bulk of energy consumption in most of the developed countries is in the industrial and transportation sectors. So in the US, it's uh, roughly 60% of the energy consumption. In the mainland uh, European countries and EU countries, it's closer to 65. That's based on the estimates I could find, so correct me if I'm wrong. And then obviously buildings, both commercial and residential, account for the last 40 or so percent that ends up being there. Is that correct? (laughs) 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 To your knowledge? Yes, yes, roughly, yeah. (laughs) So I, I joke, but it's funny. I really spent a good 30 or so minutes trying to find these numbers. And I looked everywhere I could possibly look. I looked at the DOE in the US. I looked in the both the EU and individual country numbers. I looked on Google for sort of the UN level things. It was very difficult to find accurate numbers. Some date back to four or five years ago. Some I'm sure were not accurate. <laughs> and I, I just don't know. And. I feel like that's a, maybe that's somewhere we can start. Where should people go to get this information? Is there somewhere that is keeping this information that we can find easily? It's a good point, actually. <laughs> it's not because I was looking for these numbers myself, and I found them ultimately. I think on the in the EIA, so the Energy yes. Information. What is it even? It's the American EIA, right? Yeah. So they had their own numbers, but there's not a really great. Like database, <laughs> I, I honestly thought, there is. I, I I've thought come across on the them. UN website, given that it's part of the SDG implementation model, there would be something along these lines. I couldn't find anything. There, honestly, there are a few good ones, and I think maybe I can find them. You can put them in the comments of this afterwards. If you can, that'd be great. But I feel like my point is more to the I fact know. that I am someone who's relatively in the industry. Yeah. You're clearly in the industry, and it's not easy to find for us. So, who someone who's not looking for this information outwardly? is never going to find it. And that's that's the thing. But let's stay on topic. (laughs) So implementation, we touched a bit on retrofitting. And as I said, five times now, I did an episode with Stefan on (laughs) on the subject. But just for those who didn't get the chance to see it, retrofitting in essence, especially when we're talking about the built environment, is usually talking about when you go in, change some technology to make it more energy efficient usually. Nowadays, it's also going in more towards the smart buildings. Uh, So there's data capturing technology that goes into play. There's smart assistance. So, you know, integrating Alexa and other similar platforms uh, into the building to monitor what's happening. But that's the explanation of retrofitting. We touched a little bit on the ESCO model. It's something that's been very successful in this region. What are your thoughts on the role that retrofitting plays, given that buildings are about 40% of the consumption? How important is it? What role does that play? Give me your thoughts on this. For sure. When we think about buildings, a lot of times people think about new buildings, right? Which are super important, but retrofitting is very important, especially in countries where there's a lot of old buildings, (laughs) right? So if you look at Europe, a lot of countries have old buildings. Yeah, retrofitting is absolutely critical. A lot of countries have developed a rating scheme, so you can look at a rating between A and G often, uh, where A is very energy efficient and G is really terrible. And 
often if you get an energy performance evaluation or a certificate, you can look at the top measures that you can implement to change your building or mm -hmm. your home from a D to a B rating, for example. A lot of those involve energy efficiency measures, and many of those energy efficiency measures can be cost positive, so you can actually save money in the medium term. Retrofitting is critical. I think that, like we, we said, it's a bit difficult to align incentives sometimes, especially if people are renting or leasing buildings. There's a misaligned incentives between those who operate them, those who pay for the operating bills, those who lease them. So yeah, retrofitting is, is a critical component of managing the built environment. I think it's interesting when you come to new builds. I don't know if we want to talk about that too. Sure, but sure, yeah. There's a lot of different certification schemes. So there's LEED and there's Energy Star and a whole bunch of different. Estedama sort of, here as well. Exactly. Uh, and they're really important, <laughs> but they're funny. I went to a LEED certified building in uh, the UK a little while ago and walked in and there was no light fixtures in the whole thing because when you have a light fixture, it takes away a point on your certification scheme. Even if it's efficient lighting? It didn't matter. So they just didn't include any lighting at all in the home, only like sockets where you could plug in lamps. It was a way to, and they have like bike racks outside, lots of them, right? And I was like, okay, this is fine. I've but never heard this. It wow, was that's so crazy. bizarre. That's insane. It was okay. so bizarre. And there's always ways to like skirt around these rating schemes. But anyway, I thought it was a funny change. Yeah, essentially efficient appliances are absolutely critical. And I think that it's surprising how quickly things get more efficient. Yeah, yeah. So like an old fridge really does need replacing after a while, even if you look at the life cycle cost of that fridge. Yeah. But I think that's the thing. You brought a good point because I haven't talked about new build for a while. And the reason I think is there's a lot of good policies. Maybe this example you're talking about isn't the best <laughs> one. But I've, I've seen a lot of the LEED certified buildings. They, they implement certain characteristics that need to be applied that certain policies that need to be adopted, let's say, yeah. that make new buildings a lot more efficient than existing buildings. And a lot of times it's about going back to a building that was built 30 years ago with a completely different everything, right? The MEP is different, the concrete's different, the windows yeah. and the insulation is different, the heating or the cooling in this region is completely different to what it would be. And you have to go in and change each of those things because it doesn't make sense to just break down the building completely and build a new one, right? Yeah. That's also not efficient. Yeah. So it's, I think that's why I always talk about retrofitting, but it's a good point. New buildings definitely need to be as efficient as possible as well. And Yeah, and there's something called embodied carbon. So it's the mm -hmm. amount of carbon that's contained in the material that's used to build it and the emissions that are emitted when you actually bring the equipment and so on yeah. to site. And often, you know, in the embodied carbon in a building can often be about like 30 or 40% of the total emissions of that building. Wow. So, yeah, so it means you can operate the building for 50 years, but <laughs> the emissions from the first like six months or one year that it took to build it represents a huge amount of I didn't lifetime. even know that. Okay, so refurbishment is really the way to go because if you don't retrofit and you just break it down and build it again, it's... Exactly. Damn, okay. And it's also super expensive to retrofit things compared to just doing the right thing or the, the, the most efficient thing 100%, when you yeah. start building. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Um, it makes sense, right? Because... The building is built and then you're going to go back in and try to remove it. It's not even human surgery is difficult, <laughs> but it's not even that simple because it's like you're going into places that you can't really be going into to change things that interconnect the entire building, especially if it's a big building, then it's, it's really rocket science. Exactly. Or doing any kind of, in this region, especially district cooling is a mm -hmm. real opportunity and air conditioning takes up, I think, 70% of the electricity like that. load, yeah, yeah, exactly. which is huge. And the difference between the wall-mounted air conditioner versus chillers, versus district cooling, mm -hmm. 
is I think it's a four to one ratio between district cooling and a well-mounted. Depends so, on the scale of the building yeah. and the area, but yeah, and it's much it's more like, efficient. Exactly, but it's really hard to retrofit a building with that has well-mounted air conditioners with a district cooling system. It's you, you, you can't, can't really, really do it. I don't see how you would do that. No, no. replacing you, you just need a completely new MEP. Yeah, exactly. If you thought about that at the beginning, it would be much much cheaper, and That's the true, operating yeah. costs would be cheaper. This again comes back to the same issue though around it costs a little bit more to implement the energy efficiency measure than you're doing the build, but the energy savings more than pay for that additional upfront capital cost. And I think that's where, again, back to this financing thing, yeah, we can just get loans to offset that upfront cost because you know you're going to save the money over time. Yeah. yeah, and ESCOs and super ESCOs take up some of that cost as well in other scenarios. But you made me really think a building that, for example, has something that you can retrofit. I'm Sure, there's some kind of modeling that's done for this, but with the new technologies, digital twins and whatnot, where you can take in all the building data, put it into a software, do a simulation, and see, okay, is it better if I just break this completely down and build a new one, or is it long-term better for the environment, at least, if I just do small bits and bobs here and there, maybe use more efficient wall-mounted ACs rather than central cooling in a new building. Yeah. So I'm curious how that ends up. I don't know if you know of any technologies that are doing this. I don't know, actually. Actually, there are some. I think they do modeling. There is modeling for software. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think there's something interesting, too, is when new technology comes to the fore, like building integrated solar photo, <laughs> building integrated photovoltaics, BIPV. Yeah. I remember I was doing some work for a perovskite company a while ago. Perovskite is that type of solar panel, essentially. It's, okay. it's like a very thin, almost translucent Like uh, the film material. solar PVs? Yeah. Okay. So you can cover a window yeah, in this yeah, perovskite yeah. material. It almost tints the window. Mm-hmm. And in the region, every window is tinted anyway, right? Because the sun is quite intense. So it doesn't actually take away from the visual aspect of things. But it essentially makes every window a solar panel. So you can generate a relatively small amount of electricity from this perovskite-coated window. Mm -hmm. But it means that the whole building is like a power plant. When the sun shines or reflects even, it can turn some of that incoming sunlight into electricity and power the building. Very interesting, and I think especially relevant for the region here. And those are technologies that cost a bit to retrofit, but once you do, it's not... But that's very expensive, right? Yeah, it's expensive. It's very expensive. (laughs) I think if that's the kind of thing that the cost comes down, and obviously if you've built the buildings in a way that has enough sun exposure, for example, that's really the next big thing, I think. Yeah. Rooftop solar is great, but it's just so limiting. In a skyscraper that's 50 floors up, you have much more window space than you do roof space, exactly. no matter what you're doing, especially because, uh, again, Stefan said this, a lot of times on the top floor is where you have your equipment, uh, central cooling yeah. systems and MEP things ending up there. So it's always better to, if you could do it on the windows, that's the next big thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Ter- what about industrial scale? In terms of solar? No, retrofits uh, in general. And obvi- of course, let's talk about energy efficiency first, sure, and then we sure. can make our way to renewables. The opportunity for industrial energy efficiency is enormous. A lot of times, energy makes up a big component of the industrial bill, and like energy bill is, is a big cost. Industries that are well-run, and companies that are well-run in an industrial scale, tend to actually have their finger on the pulse often of energy efficiency measures that can be done. They typically have energy managers. A commercial building don't, won't necessarily have an energy manager. Yeah. They'll have someone who like knows how to operate the system but isn't necessarily optimizing it for performance. In an in industrial scale, the incentives are a bit different. So I've actually found that, especially in environments where energy is relatively expensive, industrial players tend to have a fairly good handle on what they can do 
That doesn't mean they're maximally efficient by any means, though. So, for example, I, I did a piece of work in South Africa looking at establishing a big industrial energy efficiency program. And the big limiting factor there was, first of all, people who had the capability to do energy audits. And then those who really knew after the audit was done, like how to right size equipment and do the economic calculation to figure out if we were to place the chillers and the fans and the pumps and drives, like what is the actual cost of the replacement? And then how does that achieve benefits? What's the economic break-even point, essentially, and how much of these energy efficiency measures should we do where we earn our revenue back in whatever, four years or six years, whatever the time horizon was for the company. So you need sometimes these big programs that bring together that kind of technical expertise, but also the economic capability to really figure out what it is that, that makes economic sense. I think there's a difference, too, between big, huge, heavy industry and medium energy intensive industries. And we can think about like iron, steel, glass making, cement, ceramics, Mm -hmm. aluminum, right? These are the really heavy, brute force, 1,200 degree heat type of industries. And then they know what they're doing when it comes to energy because energy is a huge part of their bill. When it comes to things like um, bakeries or (laughs) dairies or like, honestly, these are still like medium energy intensive, right? Bakeries use a lot of heat. Dairies use a lot of cold, (laughs) coldness. That's true, yeah. Um, Restaurants as well, yeah. Restaurants, exactly. And these guys are often just focused on their core business more so than their energy bill. And I think there's a real opportunity in that medium energy intensive industry where there are fewer players, but or, or there's more players. Their consumption is lower. But their overall. consumption yeah. is lower. I know the Carbon Trust in the UK focused a lot on industrial energy efficiency for these medium energy intensive industries and came up with really neat solutions. Like in bakeries, for example, they used, instead of having metal trays that go into the oven where you bake bread, they used silicon trays instead because silicon doesn't, get cold outside of the oven and then need a bunch of heat to warm up. The metal actually absorbs a lot of heat and then it gets let up, okay. right? So by changing the material, the bread breaks just fine, but it used a lot less. Like the oven didn't have to heat up all this metal and then let it all cool off later. Right. And then in the store, you didn't need as much air conditioning because you weren't letting all this hot metal That's so cool, cool off. Yeah. It meant the air conditioning That's low smart. produced. So just a small change in materials changed this whole energy performance. It's funny. You learn something new in this industry every day. <laughs> I didn't even think about that, right? I didn't even think about those industries. Because when I say industry, I'm always thinking the big players, like you were just saying, concrete, cement, glass. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think of bakeries. Because that's, is that considered industrial or commercial? It's in it's, a big budget. I think it's scope? like light industrial, right? It's like light. I have no idea because I couldn't find the breakdown. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? This is my problem. Yeah. <laughs> to go back. No, totally. No, food and beverage, that's an industrial, a lighter industrial. Okay. And honestly, it uses a lot of freezing and yeah, heating yeah. and stuff. There's actually quite a bit of energy going into these factories. Yeah. Freezing, too. There's yeah. a huge opportunity for companies that have big freezers. You'll see, especially here, every time you open up the back of a truck <laughs> that has cold things in it, you'll see, of course, these plastic hangers or slabs coming down to prevent the cold yeah. from escaping. And there's an opportunity for big industrial freezers to use them actually to balance out the energy load, especially in high renewables places, because you can keep a freezer at minus 18 degrees or whatever. But it doesn't really matter if it's minus 18 or minus 16 for a little while or minus 20. And energy system operators sometimes need that flexibility to say if there's too much supply on the grid, can someone use more power to balance the grid? Or there's not enough supply on the grid, can someone stop using it for a minute to just to balance things out? Mm-hmm. So these big industrial players who have big freezers, that's a really good option. They can choose to 
freeze their things a little colder or let them thaw a little bit. It doesn't affect the quality of their produce, but it helps them balance the grid. Interesting. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of interplay between these medium intensive industries. But that needs data, right? That needs almost real-time data from the distribution side to go back to the users, right? Yeah, and sometimes you can just offer remote control of your of your equipment within certain parameters. There's a whole industry around demand response. That's what it's essentially called responding. <laughs> it allows you to respond to demand fluctuations. So the grid operator can commission a bunch of energy users to hand over control of their equipment to manage it within certain parameters. And they're trying it even with normal residential appliances. So you can hand over control of your dishwasher or your washer dryer or your fridge. And there can be this smart, this is the Internet of Things, right? It can be a smart control of these appliances. So at a macro level, if the grid is suffering with either too much supply or not enough, the grid operator can send a message to these appliances to... That's so cool. Yeah, your fridge can stop running for like Instead of, for example, in some countries where just have blackouts. Exactly. You'll just reduce some things that are less essential and still have lights, which don't use nearly as much as... That's really cool. Where is this being done? Uh, It's being done all over the place, definitely in the UK and Europe. It's the kind of smart grid approach, often in a more trial basis. But I know in California, there's a lot of energy challenges, so they're rolling it out there. Yeah, it's a really neat way of creating grid flexibility. I think this gives me really a good scope to jump in more to the technology side of things. I want to talk about smart buildings since you brought it up, but let's take a little U-turn and come back to it. Future-proofing. It's a topic that's really important for this kind of thing. We talked a bit about it here and there. It goes from, for example, consumer goods, consumer electronics, so a dishwasher right now, a fridge, an HVAC unit, if you have a wall-mounted one, whatever else you might have, is getting more and more energy efficient as time goes on. And it's a lot more energy efficient than it was 10, 15 years ago. So just changing the one that you have right now to a more energy efficient one could really save you money. But the question always becomes to me, when do you do it? At a micro level, it's easy to think about, but when you're talking macro level, when you're talking an industrial player and they're thinking, okay, we wanna change everything we're doing. Should we do it now? Should we do it next year? What's the best practice? And I'll give you a little analogy when you're thinking about buying a new phone, right? The new iPhone's coming out in one month. Do you buy the old one now? Do you wait for the new one to come out? Do you wait for the new one to come out and then buy the old one because you expect the cost to go down? And that's sort of the, Best analogy, because the technology with phones is linear. It comes every September with this phone, and this phone comes out every January or March and whatever else. But with these technologies, we don't know when the next big thing is coming. So you're almost scared, oh, if I invest so much now, and in one year, something that's 20% more effective comes out, I've lost out on essentially 20% worth of savings, right? How should companies, industrial players, governments think about this as a factor? Technology breakthroughs that have major cost implications aren't that frequent. And we see a, an energy efficiency rate of, I don't know, between 2 and 3% a year okay. in general. Over a 10-year lifespan of a piece of equipment, that's a huge change, right? It could be 20 or 30% less energy intensive than it was when you bought it, if you were to replace it today. Mm-hmm. We don't see this massive leap. Okay in energy efficiency all the time. It's, yeah, I think it can make a bit of a predictable thing and an assessment. And, and it's, it's actually not as hard as you might think. So you can look at the cost of a new asset. What would it take to replace it? What's like the downtime from stopping your factory to replace this asset, mm-hmm. if, if that's a consideration? And get all those costs together. And then you look at the energy savings that you'd have over the lifetime of that asset. And you can just do the back-to-front calculation, do a bit of 
discount rate for future savings, which make them less worthwhile today. And, and you can just put it all into a spreadsheet and come up with an answer. I think that the question that's a bit harder is when you're doing these massive capital refurbishments. So sometimes if you're changing like a steel factory from a coal-fired one to an electric arc furnace, this is a billion-dollar investment. And these are often like policy-driven things as well. So countries often want to maintain a domestic steel capability or industry. So you can barter with the government and ask them to help you with the payments. So I think some of these big-ticket items happen a lot less frequently. And that one's a bit tougher to figure out. Okay. One of the things that makes it easier to make this calculation is if there's a really clear cost of carbon that goes forward. In Canada, for example, there's a carbon tax. It started at $20 a ton, Canadian, and had a predictable, it was going to go up $5 a ton every year uh, until 2030, and it would be like, whatever, $150 a ton by 2030. So you can see this really clear future Interesting. Cost, right? Interesting. Okay. And then you'd know, okay, today I'm, you know, my equipment costs this much. This is the carbon tax for, for that or the kind of penalty mm-hmm. I'm going to pay. So do I do it today or next year or the year after? And you can factor in the asset replacement costs because you've got a really clear policy framework and you really know what it's going to cost you if you wait for a year or wait for three years because the carbon price will go up and Anyway, it just makes it a lot clearer for investment decisions. And this kind of policy certainty is what everyone always asks for. And in that case, a carbon tax gave that really clear outline. So what's this $5 a year based on? Is it just we need to hit this target by 2030s? If you don't do it now, it's going to cost you more to do it later. Is that the idea behind it? or? Yeah, and it gives companies certainty about, about what their investment decisions should be. This is where I think an emissions trading system is challenging because you don't know for sure what the cost of carbon is going to be in five years. So there's all this uncertainty about do we invest or not? I don't know. And you've seen this wild price fluctuation in terms of carbon credits in the emissions trading scheme. It becomes more of a gamble. Whereas if you have this certainty, it's just a rational choice. So because there's not going to be revolutionary innovation in most of these sectors, we should just tell people to start investing now. (laughs) Is that what you're saying? Yeah, invest where... Invest where it makes economic sense to do. Because well, what you if you're constructing a building now and then the cost of BIPV goes down significantly in two years? Is that something that can really happen or? Yeah, honestly, like this did happen with solar itself. Solar PV, the price has fallen by 85, 90% in the past, since 2010, huge yeah. reduction in cost. And the costs are coming down so fast, actually, that this is a big challenge in India, which is running these big auctions where they said we have a gigawatt, we're going to procure a gigawatt of solar who can put in the lowest price bid and will select you as the person to build this PV. So companies would bid in these ridiculously low prices because they could see the cost curve coming down and they wanted to get a foothold in the industry and really become the big solar player in India. So they really underbid what the current prices were. Like, yeah, we can deliver for 10 cents a, a megawatt or for, you know, 5 cents, oh, 4 cents a kilowatt, like really the rock bottom prices. And then they would win the concession because they had the lowest price but then drag their feet for years of actually right. building it because they were just waiting for oh, the price man. to come down. And it was like the economically rational thing to do because they weren't really t- tied really strictly to building on a certain... And they could build like 10 megawatts this year and maybe 100 next year and then wait to build the gigawatt until the price of solar came down. So, yeah, that's an issue in some of these really breakthrough things. And solar was one of those things. I think actually this is one of the things holding up hydrogen a little bit is like people expect the price of hydrogen to collapse. I personally expect the price of hydrogen to come down quite fast. There's Mm -hmm. so many breakthroughs on the horizon. 
And I think it's spooking a lot of people who don't want to sign these long-term offtake agreements at today's high price because they're waiting until tomorrow's lower prices come through. Yeah. In some industries that are really wow. breakthrough, that's definitely an issue. For energy efficiency, I think that it's a lot more. Um, okay, no, but not yeah. necessarily just for energy efficiency, for renewable integration, right? Yeah. What do you do there? Yeah, offshore wind is a good example. Yeah, actually. Yeah. So I worked at the offshore renewable energy catapult for a while, a big energy, like a clean tech center of excellence for offshore wind, wave, and tidal power. And the big goal, I think at the time, I was there in 2015, maybe. The big goal, the cost was about 120 pounds or 140 pounds per megawatt of installed capacity. And the goal by 2020 was to get it down to 100 pounds. That would have been a huge success in five years to reduce the cost by 40 quid, going from 140 to 100. By the time 2020 rolled around, the cost of offshore wind was like 80 or 75 dollars a megawatt. And now they're doing strike prices like 65 or lower. The costs fell way faster than people expected. And um, it shook the industry a lot, right? Some of these big players who had planned for a much more expensive future. I don't know. It, it's just hard like, when you can't when you don't have expectations for where the price and cost of things are going to go. It makes business decisions really difficult to make, and the more certainty you can give, the better. So in the UK, they had something called a strike price, where you guarantee a certain level of pricing for the power produced by projects that are in a certain round of, of bidding. And that basically made sure that everyone who put forward a project in that round was going to get a price that, for the lifetime of the project, that allowed them to earn a small profit. And you need to create these mechanisms in these really wild environments to make sure people don't just sit on the fence. You need to motivate them with that certainty that they're going to earn a profit from their investment today. Otherwise, no one will will move and will just delay. Yeah. So essentially, outside of that existing, there's not really a solution for an industrial player who's looking to invest in something like this, unless the policy comes in and incentivizes them or penalizes them for not doing it. They're not really incentivized to just come in when they want, right? It's more, okay, when it's convenient, we'll do it. Yeah, when it's convenient. When the economics from just a pure energy savings comparison stack up. Yeah, but the problem is they... Usually when you're talking about that, they don't look long term. They don't even look medium term. Stefan was saying this again. He was saying sometimes they look one and a half years away. So if it's two years for the break even point of the project, they don't even consider it because their timeline is one and a half years or their timeline is one year. If it's one and a half years, they don't consider it. So almost that's what makes me think, how do we incentivize them to come in and do it now rather than in two years where it's going to be significantly cheaper? Yeah, that's where ESCOs come in, right? Or, yeah, right. so some policy, or yeah, or ESCOs, or okay. things like that. That's why I like ESCOs so much, because they like overcome yeah. this. If the, in an absence of policy, they still make a lot of sense. Okay. So life cycle assessments, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. It's not going to make it, based on everything you just said, it's going to make any change to this. It's <laughs> If you look into it as a methodology for capturing the data. Yeah, in terms of cost, you mean? Yeah. It depends on who the actor is. If it's a trucking company, for example, they care about operating costs, or they have at least an awareness of those compared mm-hmm. to a private driver right. who doesn't like add up the cost of their petrol over 10 years and then consider if that compares to the electricity they use to charge their electric vehicle. So they're going to get an electric vehicle versus a gas car. Yeah, I, I don't think individuals are that rational or have that much kind of headspace. <laughs> Companies are a little bit better at that. But you're right, the time horizon is sometimes too low. 
Yeah, as we got into it, industrial players, we were saying at the top, 30% of energy expenditure in the EU, 20 plus in the US, and in China, apparently it's 70%. Again, I would love for you to fact check that if it's accurate <laughs> or not, because when I heard 70%, I was shocked that the industry, and again, maybe restaurants will make up a chunk of that, <laughs> but that the industry is 70% in China, and it's what, the second biggest economy in the world? Yeah, it's also the world's factory, right? The majority of that's crazy. Like though. the vast majority of steel is produced there. They just produce a lot of the most energy-intensive products in the world. It's a massive natural resource importer and just a finished goods or improved goods exporter. Yeah, I'm not totally surprised by that. Fair enough. So along those lines, when you're talking about the SDGs, when you're talking about reducing the numbers, developing countries generally have more industry because they're developing. Yeah compared to developed countries. A country that relies on industry 50 plus percent of its GDP, or a country that is using a majority of its energy, like China, 70%, to power this industry, and can't really cut that down. What do they do in this instance? Yes, you can be more energy efficient, you can bring in renewable integration. What's the solution for this in the long term? You can't tell these industrial players and countries to cut down on their industrial usage. And to be more energy efficient is not always going to hit the... The targets. Yeah. yeah. So what do you do? Okay, just renewable integration. It's, as you well know, it's not always very logical to go into a renewable integration before doing an energy efficiency audit and then making those changes. It's like trying to add a motor to a sailboat <laughs> instead of fixing the leaks and the holes that are in there, right? Yeah. That's the analogy that I always get from people. So what do you do in that scenario to incentivize them. There's a reason that the industrial sector is called a hard-to-abate sector, right? Because right? it's hard to abate. It's difficult to decarbonize. It's expensive. And it requires fundamental change in the way that you do industrial activity. Like the cement industry is energy intensive, partly because it requires a lot of heat, but also because there's a chemical change when you turn limestone into clinker. It emits CO2. There's a chemical mm -hmm. reaction between calcium carbonate and other chemicals that emits CO2. So that's just an inherent component of that process. So you really need to reimagine how cement is going to work in the future. And there are solutions to that, but it takes innovation and, and effort. And cement is used in buildings and bridges. You can't just replace it with any old cement because it's a safety issue. So you need to make sure that it has the characteristics that normal cement has. With steel, you can go for direct reduction using hydrogen. And there are chemical processes, again, that you just need typically or traditionally coke and coal to add enough carbon into the steel to make it the right product. And again, it's hard to abate. It's hard to change that industrial process. Uh, so yeah, and industry is hard to deal with. But that's yeah. one of the reasons saying that hydrogen is something that over the past couple of years has become such a hot topic because there's a recognition that these industries that are hard to abate, including heavy industry, but also shipping, aviation, chemical production, hydrogen is a potential solution for those. Okay. And it's going to take a while to get a hydrogen industry up and running that's big enough to satisfy the demand of these hard to abate sectors. So if we're serious about net zero by 2050 and we want to make serious progress by 2030 and 2035, that's why hydrogen today is becoming such a big issue. It's because we see the writing on the wall, right? We see in 10 years, we're going to need a vast amount of hydrogen to decarbonize these hard to abate industries, mm -hmm. which means we need to get serious about making it today and scaling up the industry today so that the supply is there 
when the rubber hits the road in 2035, when industry really needs to reduce. Love that pun there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay, I, I want to touch more on hydrogen, but let's talk about carbon capture first. Sure. What about carbon capture? Everyone I've spoken to says it's so expensive at the moment, and we'll see in a few years if it reduces in cost. So it always goes back to that. What are your thoughts on CCUS as a whole, so the storage, movement, utilization of it as well? What is the writing on the wall for that? This is an area that's become more and more important. It's an area that the UAE and the region has particular capability in. It has the right geology, right? It has the right kind of underground storage capabilities, big reservoirs that can be capped. It's been using carbon capture and injection technology for 30 years, largely for enhanced oil recovery. So you can inject CO2 into these wells, pressurize them, and get more oil yeah. out. Yeah, so it's something that's a real consideration here in the region. It's also something, I think, globally that is in all the future climate models. So we're expecting carbon capture and storage, CCUS utilization and storage, to play a part in the tapestry of decarbonization pathways or, or technologies. I personally don't think it's going to have a huge impact on the overall amount of carbon that's emitted and ultimately reduced. Okay. Partly because the sequestration, the storage potential is relatively modest, right? Mm. I think total storage potential in terms of gigatons of storage, it's between 1% and 5% of the total emissions annually. Sure, it can play a role, but is it going to play this game-changing role? Mm. I don't really think so. The cost, of course, is an issue, but just the physical storage space is another barrier. The other one is that it's not really near. Oftentimes, the storage space isn't actually next to a lot of the emission sources. So you need this mm. huge transportation network of pipes carrying pressurized CO2 or to go into a storage facility somewhere right. else. So piping all this CO2 from, I don't know, California to Texas or where, from like Germany to Can you do to anything to with the, the CO2 UK. that's removed? Or just it can just get stored? Yeah, you can do stuff with it for sure. So there's a huge industry now around the U part of CCUS, yeah. right? What is this utilization? And there, the initial ones are cheesy. It's, oh, you can put it into fizzy drinks. and yeah. You know, and, but who cares, right? That's, it's, that's not, I shouldn't say who cares, but it's such a small... Hey, man, I've got one of those, and I love it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but you're just emitting it later, right? That's the thing. So you, like, you use it, and then the CO2 gets emitted anyway. So I guess you're using... Anyway, I think it's a relatively small... I think use. when it's emitted out of water, there's a difference, though, right? If, I, if Unless my science is really fuzzy. No pun intended. <laughs> uh, very fizzy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but... It's better if it comes out of water f- before it goes into the atmosphere, right? Because it connects to the hydrogen or something. Am I completely wrong with that? My understanding it was is what it's the same. Um, ah, wow. but damn. Yeah, <laughs> but there there are like there's there's lots of ways to use carbon. I think there's a real industry to figure out like how do we use this carbon, mm-hmm. uh, and it takes away some of the issue around the storage potential. Yeah. Right? So if you can actually use it for something productive, that's great. Any examples come to mind? Yeah. One of the interesting ones, actually, is you can take CO2 and combine it with hydrogen. You can create a, a syn fuel, mm-hmm. synthetic fuel. I've been working with a company who, who produces e-methanol, e-kerosene, kerosene essentially jet fuel. So, so you can take these inputs of CO2 stream, hydrogen stream, combine them to make a syn fuel, and then use that as a drop-in fuel for planes and ships. And that's great. That's a circular carbon economy approach to using carbon dioxide. You can pump it through greenhouses to make plants grow faster. Interesting. So that's quite a common use. They mm-hmm. absorb a bit more CO2. Most yeah. of it gets emitted back into the atmosphere. So it's not really a 
capture technology, its utilization. If it's going to be emitted anyway, you may as well pump it through a tomato house. There's lots going on in this space. I think it's going to play a marginal role in the ultimate. And so I'm story. guessing because of because it's not really an easy thing to do with it and you can't really sell it yet at least. Financially, there's not really a big incentive for industrial players to implement it right at the moment. No. It's quite expensive, as you said, so you need pretty high carbon tax or, or carbon price to make it economically viable. Mm. For the technology to catch up. Okay. Yeah. So it's all about hydrogen then. Green hydrogen is the big one that everyone talks about, but since we're talking about carbon capture, blue hydrogen, does this mean blue hydrogen is not going to be a big thing either? And maybe just define blue hydrogen for the listeners and then... Sure. So there's different colors of hydrogen. Green hydrogen is made from using water and renewable electricity. Electricity can split a water atom, which is H2O. Mm -hmm. You get the H, which is hydrogen, and the O, oxygen. Blue hydrogen is different. It uses, instead of water and electricity as a feedstock, it uses gas and heat. Um, So you can split a gas molecule, which is CH4, carbon and four hydrogens, and you get a stream of carbon and a stream of hydrogen. You can capture that hydrogen and use it, and then the C, the carbon, tends to combine with O, oxygen. <laughs> so you get CO, which is methane, or CO2, which is carbon dioxide. And you have to capture that CO or CO2 and then put it underground or use it in a carbon utilization issue. Which comes back to the same thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. There's one alternative, actually, which I think is really interesting. I, personally, it's called yeah, pink made from nuclear. So that's water splitting using nuclear electricity, nuclear-powered electricity. What's the one you meant? Turquoise. So turquoise is uh, using gas as well as a feedstock, um, but it uses renewable power to split the gas molecule into carbon and hydrogen. And instead of getting CO2 out the end from the carbon side, you just get carbon black, which is just like soot. Like a solid carbon. A solid carbon, which actually has a market. So you use this in tires and a lot of other... If nothing else, it's not going into atmosphere, right? Exactly. Or you don't need to deal with compression, capture, and sequestration. It comes out as a solid. I've always found this to be a particularly interesting... I heard about this. Is it new? Is it not being as used as much? Or uh, it's, it's a lot less mature, <clears throat> um, but it definitely exists as a technology. Hydrogen is so interesting. There's so many different colors as well. Green, blue, turquoise. We talked about pink as well. Um, there's more? There's so many more. Well, man. <laughs> it's a rainbow. It's a whole rainbow. <laughs> there's like in situ extraction as well. So you can actually put mm-hmm. enzymes or something into exhausted or disused oil and gas reservoirs and separate the carbon and hydrogen underground. So the carbon can stay there and the hydrogen itself can be pumped out. This is called like white or clear hydrogen. Yeah. And that's especially using the used up oil sites is a big factor for the storage side of CCUS. Yeah. But I didn't know you could get hydrogen out of that equation. That's interesting. Yeah, a really neat company. I think it's called Proton has this technology, Canadian company. So yeah, there's all kinds of different colors. I think the point, and people including me, <laughs> worry about this color coding sometimes because... Yeah, I was just going to say, it's turquoise, come on. <laughs> yeah, there's just so many, right? <laughs> and I think we need to bring it back to fundamentals. What's yeah. the whole point of this hydrogen economy? It's to decarbonize the economy, right? No one would ever use hydrogen if we didn't care about climate change. It's expensive and hard to make, and there are other fossil fuels that do the job better. <laughs> the only reason that hydrogen is around is because we need to decarbonize different industries. So what that means is that the hydrogen we produce needs to be low carbon. It doesn't matter to me 
how it's made. What matters to me is the carbon content per kilogram of hydrogen that's produced. Even green, which is using renewable electricity, there are questions around if you're building a solar plant or a wind farm in a place where the electricity grid is not clean and you're using that renewable power to make hydrogen rather than using that renewable power to decarbonize the grid, how green is that hydrogen right. really? The shadow cost of carbon in that case is the grid emissions factor, right? It's how much carbon is being emitted from the grid because you could have displaced grid electricity with those renewables you're using to make green hydrogen. There is a lot of like complexity around what the actual carbon content of hydrogen is. Is there room for using the excess generation when there's the non-peak hours? You could use some of that excess energy to create hydrogen, and when there's not, when it's peak time, you just use it for uh, the grid generation? It's a bit inefficient because okay. often the it's the capital cost of hydrogen equipment that costs a lot of Mm. money. So if you're underutilizing, you, you want to use it 24-7, right? right? Which makes it actually hard to run a renewable hydrogen facility because the sun shines for 12 hours a day and the wind maybe is unreliable. Can you guarantee enough renewable power for your hydrogen factory in your plant? It's tough, especially in when the rules are such. In Europe, they've made quite strict rules around what constitutes green hydrogen and when you can use the renewable power. It has to be within the first few hours. Anyway, so there's difficult rules around. They've eased up a bit, but the policy limitations have made it a little bit more difficult for people to be confident that their investment is going to mm. qualify as green. So what makes you so confident that the price is going to drop and it's going to go well then, given all these limitations? It's one of these early stage technologies. And because there are so many colors, as we've discussed, <laughs> there's all these different technology pathways you can use. And I follow this industry fairly closely, and you can just see breakthrough after breakthrough, different ways of making electrolyzers that don't use precious metals, and that's a huge cost. Or I think the cost of renewables is going to continue to fall, and that's the biggest input cost to making hydrogen. So if renewables keep falling, uh, in terms of cost, then the price of hydrogen will continue to fall. I think that it's an industry where the whole world is really geared in innovation right now. When you looked at the solar industry, for example, in the past, like the whole world wasn't innovating. Germany was really putting a ton of money into solar innovation. They had super leading companies. China took up the mantle, and then they vertically integrated, and the costs plummeted, right? When it comes to wind, it was the UK and Scandinavian Scandinavia country, right? that invested so much. But that's just a handful of countries. It's not the whole world. And right now, everyone is really keen yeah. on it. For hydrogen, the innovators are here in the US, in South America, in China. Everyone is focused on this industry. So that's another component. And when you look at battery storage, for example, the cost of batteries is also following a similar cost curve to what solar did. It's plummeting. And I think part of the reason for that is, again, because there's a lot of players working on innovation, but also there's a lot of different battery chemistries that you can use. So it's not just lithium ion, but yeah. there's all kinds of different ones. When you've got that combination of variety of production methods, lots of people and lots of countries working at it, there's really big subsidies for scale, especially in the US right now, the Inflation Reduction Act has a huge $3 per kilogram subsidy that can be stacked with renewable subsidies. So you've just got this environment which is going to allow for economies of scale and a lot of innovation coming through. For all those reasons, I think the cost of hydrogen is going to fall faster than we think. I guess the question is, do we have the rest of the puzzle figured out? Yeah, okay. And do we? 
So we, we've talked about the production. What about the storage? What about the transportation? And really, most importantly, the use of it. Yeah. What are we doing with hydrogen? <laughs> Let's start with that, actually. What, what, what are some of the implications of hydrogen? What can we do it, with it? We can do tons with this molecule. You got to um, start with the puns, man. <laughs> <laughs> we can do all kinds of things with this molecule. I guess the question is whether we want to. And I, the reason is because like, despite my eagerness about the low cost and fast cost curve reduction of hydrogen, it is expensive mm -hmm. um, compared to alternatives. And I think what we haven't fully considered is the physical space that it takes to build these renewables to power this industry. So I think if Germany was to replace its gas use with hydrogen, like literally the entire country's geography would have to be covered in solar panels and windmills to, wow. to make it work. So that's totally impractical, but it gives you a sense of replacing gas with hydrogen it requires this huge footprint. That's why people expect there to be a big trade in this molecule because there are places that are less full, like the Sahara Desert and the middle of the desert here in Abu Dhabi and all over Saudi Arabia. But there's implications in that as well, because I, I read somewhere that if you were to cover the entire Sahara Desert with uh, solar panels, it would decrease the temperature so significantly that it would cause water shortages in, I think, Latin America because of the way water flows through the mm -hmm. oceans and whatnot. So that would actually, because the rainfall would then fall in Africa and so it wouldn't go into uh, Latin America. That's some of the things that you have to consider. I don't know how accurate that is, by the way. I found that on the internet, so <laughs> okay. correct me if I'm wrong. But there's long-lasting indirect implications as well, right? Yeah, for sure. Th this is the issue. And I think when it comes to decarbonization, a lot of these different factors have to be considered. And the physical footprint of producing all this energy is a big one to, to think about. This is why actually this isn't super popular either, but this nuclear concept, like using nuclear electricity to produce hydrogen, the footprint of that is a lot smaller. It's debatable because you consider the uranium mines. And of, stuff course, that, of course, of course. But uh, nevertheless, it's an option or an alternative, not a cheap one because nuclear is expensive. You have to balance all these considerations. Is that the main use? Because you said the example of Germany. So I'm just curious. Most gas in Germany is used for the industrial sector, not for okay. power. That is what it would mostly go to gotcha. replace, which I think is actually a, a good use of hydrogen. You can use hydrogen, for example, you can use it for everything. Electricity generation, passenger vehicles, airplanes, all kinds of different things. In my opinion, hydrogen should be reserved for those hard to abate sectors where electrification doesn't work. You can quite easily electrify a passenger vehicle. It's harder to electrify a long haul truck. Perfect. I think a long haul truck is an okay use of hydrogen, especially in the near term when you want to try and match supply and demand. When it comes to shipping and aviation, it's quite hard to find a replacement for jet fuel that putting batteries in a plane doesn't really work if <laughs> it's too heavy, right? Yeah. So hydrogen or syn synthetic fuels that use hydrogen and CO2 to power a plane like that for me is a good use. The chemical industry is the biggest mm -hmm. user of hydrogen right now. Also, if hydrogen was a country, it would be like the fifth biggest emitter in the world. It goes like China, the U.S., wow. like Russia, Japan, hydrogen. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy, right? Hydrogen's a huge emitter right now, which is, again, why we need to be careful about this steamrolling into a hydrogen mm. economy if we're not really careful about the carbon content of hydrogen. So, yeah, I think that these really hard to abate sectors that are potentially otherwise using hydrogen fertilizer in another area where like ammonia yeah, yeah. is used, so another good replacement. Yeah, what are these things that are really hard to do in the absence of hydrogen, let's put hydrogen there. If there's an alternative, 
then let's probably use the alternative. So for power generation itself, it's not really something that we should... It, it's not going to replace gas, basically, oh, for power generation. Certainly not. What mm -hmm. it can do, though, is manage intermittency. So if mm -hmm. there's a period when there's very little wind and no sun, that's a big risk to a fully decarbonized grid. Batteries can manage... Only do so much. Yeah, they can manage like a short period of lack of power. But to manage a couple days, you need a longer term. So kind of like hydro is used these days as well, right? Yeah, pumped hydro, exactly. Yeah. So that's used as a good, reliable battery. But again, not every geography has a mountain. Right. <laughs> so hydrogen can be used for those type of mm -hmm. more emergency situations. But burning hydrogen, like just to power a turbine, in my opinion, doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay, so what about the transportation and storage? Uh, transportation is always the thing that people talk about as, as a big challenge at the moment, mm -hmm. at least. Yeah. Do we need pipes? Is it going to be in containers and tankers? What do you see the future of that going towards? Yeah, huge debate here as well. And again, an area for innovation. There's all kinds of different ways to transport hydrogen. There's like liquid organic carriers and you can put it with metal and then heat up the metal to liberate the hydrogen. You can turn it into ammonia and then, which is NH4, and then crack the ammonia at the other side, which means heating it up again to separate the hydrogen from the nitrogen. You can just directly burn the ammonia when it gets to its destination. So there's all kinds of different ways. All of them seem pretty expensive to me. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, and complicated. <laughs> and complicated. <laughs> and the energy balance isn't very good, right? Mm -hmm. You have to compress something and then decompress it or turn it into ammonia and then deconstruct the ammonia again. Mm -hmm. It's all of these steps take a lot of power, which makes the whole point, yeah. loses the point, right? Ultimately, I think for long distance transport, we're going to need a big pipeline infrastructure, which I think is very reasonable. Could we tap into the existing LNG totally. pipelines if um, they become defunct eventually? They run out, right? Yeah, and you can even blend hydrogen into gas right now to decrease the carbon content of the fuel. And you can typically burn um, that fuel in an engine or boiler or whatever without having to do any kind of replacement before the gas gets to a certain proportion of hydrogen. So there are ways to do that. I think the more likely scenario is that we're going to see less of this huge global trade in hydrogen itself and more of a trade in the low carbon goods that hydrogen enables. So what that means is if you can use hydrogen to produce low carbon steel, then it makes more sense to make that steel in the UAE and send it to Germany than right. send Germany the hydrogen so it can make its own steel. I think that using these value added products, using hydrogen to make these value added low carbon products first of all, leads to a good economic diversification opportunity for hydrogen-producing countries. And the UAE is really keen to diversify its economy. A, and industrialization is a big part of the, the vision here. A hundred percent. So making ceramics and aluminum and steel with hydrogen and shipping those normal things around the world is way easier and probably more economically beneficial mm -hmm. than just being a resource producer and trying to bottle this difficult to ship molecule. Okay. Yeah. Is there room, I'm just thinking out loud here, is there room for on-site manufacturing and production of those resources? If it's used for fertilizers, finding a way to make the hydrogen just next to the fertilizer plant, I don't know how fertilizer is made, <laughs> yeah. but making it right next to it and then creating that fertilizer on the same spot or again, same thing with steel, aluminum. Definitely, yeah. If we're talking more domestic transport and production, it's very straightforward. You can just build your hydrogen plant 
next to the use case, which is definitely what's going to happen. It's easier, for example, to build a long electricity transmission wire from the desert to the hydrogen factory <laughs> right. than it is to build a hydrogen factory in the middle of the desert and make a pipeline of hydrogen. But yeah, that's definitely how it would work. There's a big opportunity actually around co-location. Mm-hmm. They call these hydrogen valleys. So this is an opportunity to use shared infrastructure to make hydrogen, if it's blue, to put all the CO2 pipelines that would then go to inject CO2 underground. You can have a number of facilities that tap into the same CO2 backbone. Often near a port, so you can produce the finished goods using hydrogen and ship them really nearby. Or if you're importing hydrogen, there's a good port infrastructure for that. These hydrogen valleys are a concept that's really taking off. Definitely in the UK, there's a few ports like Teesside, for example, and I know Adnoc is involved in some of those facilities. I would imagine in Saudi as well, where you have port cities that are right next to the desert, so you could combine all aspects of that, right? Absolutely. In Oman as well, the mm-hmm. port of Dukum is one that's being built up as a hydrogen valley. So we're seeing this concept take off because the infrastructure is recognized as a big challenge and cost. Is it going to be sort of like energy generation is right now, so you'll have one player that provides the energy and another one who uses it? Or is it going to be vertical integration across the board, you think? It's the port operator also produces the hydrogen and also makes the whatever fertilizer or or some combination thereof. Maybe they produce the hydrogen and ship it and someone else does the other ones. How do you foresee that just economically going forward? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that we're seeing energy companies, it, it depends on what the color is actually. So if it's blue, then a lot of like oil and gas companies are interested in mm-hmm. hydrogen because they've got that infrastructure already. If it's green, sometimes you, s- you may see electricity companies playing in this space because the biggest input cost is electricity. So mm-hmm. it's a natural fit. But there's a lot of innovators in this space too. So there are smaller companies trying to sell their equipment and others that are already active in the space, like Air Liquide, for example, like Air Liquid is how it's spelled. They have been making hydrogen for years anyway, so they're ramping up there. Mm-hmm. They're like a provider of industrial gases, so that's what they do anyway. Yeah, it's, it's a mixture. Okay, cool. So we talked about use cases. Maybe let's shift a bit to the transportation sector from industrial side. Obviously, you mentioned hydrogen can be used, for example, for long-haul vehicles. Do you foresee a shift towards the more difficult to change vehicles going on the hydrogen side and then cars and buses staying on the electrification and EV side? Yeah, I personally see electrification for passenger vehicles, for light-duty vehicles, as being the way that I think it'll go, partly because they've got a good head start. We're already seeing a massive build-out in many countries of electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And National grids are preparing for a big change in energy use patterns based on electrification of transport. Mm -hmm. And I think this year or next year, the total cost of ownership for a petrol-powered car versus an EV is a break-even point. So it's going to be the same cost of total ownership. Right now, you have to pay a little bit more Mm -hmm. for an electric vehicle in the total lifetime cost. And, and that will no longer be the case and almost now. <laughs> so Yeah, because I saw Tesla slash their prices again because of IRA, because of the Inflation Reduction Act, but maybe because everyone else is not playing in that space. But it costs us so much less than it was a few years ago for the affordable models. Totally. And everybody has some kind of affordable EV coming out the market, right? Exactly. So, exactly. so we're, we're seeing the, that change very rapidly. What's actually interesting about this market, when I worked at National Grid, they were looking at the 
the tipping point for electric vehicles. And one of the things I never thought about, but they recognized, was the fact that there's a whole resale market for cars mm-hmm. that drives consumer choices in terms of what car they will lease today. So mm-hmm. a lot of times co- people won't buy their car outright. They'll lease it for three years or whatever, and then trade it in and get another car. And as soon as this total cost of ownership thing changes, people start thinking, okay, in three years' time, when I want to trade in my car for a new one, will there be a secondary car market for mm-hmm. petrol vehicles? If not, then that means the value of my car that I wow. buy today plummets, okay. right? So there's almost like a point in which it makes more sense just to go electric moving forward. Yeah, because who's going to want a, a right. gas car in that's four so years? Yeah. When is that going to happen? Now. Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> happening now. So it's very interesting. That's so cool. I've been waiting for this period, for this moment <laughs> my, my whole life. Do you, do you have an electric vehicle yourself? <laughs> I don't drive at all. <laughs> I've got Me a neither. license, but I... Me neither. Yeah, no. <laughs> but no, it's a really interesting kind of quirk in the market mm-hmm. where suddenly you see this massive change. And yeah. for a grid operator, that's a big deal because mm-hmm. you're going to see where before there was a 1%, then 2%, then 4% of cars on the road that are electric. To go from 4 to 8 to 16 to 32 on this exponential scale means that within the course of a few years, the electricity demand is going to really change. Yeah. It means distribution networks have to change their whole operating model. Uh, in older grids, where like in a lot of Europe, their actual draw, the power draw for electric vehicles is going to be so high that it can like melt <laughs> Or over, overload transformers and anyway, so it's it's a bit of a challenge, but yeah. that's a good point. Let's talk about that because I remember someone was telling me the biggest challenge with mass implementation of electric vehicles is that if every vehicle right now was electric, we would not be able to generate enough electricity to actually power them. Mm-hmm. So we would literally need to power it with gasoline generated electricity to make that feasible, right? So we talked about in the beginning, you were saying 90% of the technology is there for renewables and whatnot. It's not being utilized enough though, right? So, and again, not just on the production side, because also you can talk about it on the charging side. More and more parking lots are installing EV charging stations, but it's still not done at a mass stage. And it's not like you can, again, they're faster, the, the charging stations that you have to go and park your car for 20 minutes. But it's not feasible. It's not like a petrol station where you just, or a gas station, as, as they call it somewhere else, where you go and park your car for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, wait till it charges, and then you go about your business. It's really going to have to be about charging it while you're parking it. What's next? <laughs> yeah, totally. When you look at the actual use of most cars, they're parked for 95% of yeah. their whole lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. And usually they're parked at work or at home. Yeah. The chances that you go on a 300-kilometer trip is like it's relatively rare that someone drives that far in one go. So you've got this need for super rapid chargers for the occasions that you have this long trip, but that's pretty rare. Most of the time you're going to be charging at home or at work. When you buy an electric vehicle, they often install a charger at home, and it takes, whatever, eight hours to charge overnight. It's good for your battery, and it doesn't fry the distribution system, so it's okay. And again, you don't need a full charge anyway, most of the time. You can run on, that, uh, on one charge for a few days easily. This is true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Range anxiety is a big issue around this. It is though, right? right? I mean, I, that's I the advantage like, Tesla has. Because totally. They really they help reduce that, whereas some of the other models that I've seen, they don't really talk about it enough. It, it doesn't give you those warnings in, in, the, in the right kind of... Because my phone runs out of battery. If my car runs out of battery, I'm screwed. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, I'm obsessed about plugging in my phone and computer all the time. I hate a low battery, so being on the road and seeing 20% would freak yeah. me out. Yeah, my, my, my dad has an electric vehicle, actually, and 
you get comfortable with it. So it takes okay. a bit of learning and the car will tell you how many kilometers you have left and you program in where you're going and it tells you yeah. everything's fine or not. And it will give you on the dashboard like where the charging stations are and so on. It's definitely doable. It requires a mass rollout of charging stations though. And they need to work. I think like one in five charging stations in the UK is broken or something like that. It's like a huge issue that will solve itself in time. Is it more feasible to do the micro charging station connected to a solar panel? I think, I don't remember where it was. I read this recently that it's either Canada or UK or somewhere in the US where any parking space that's more than X meters has to have some kind of solar PV generated electric charging. Mm -hmm. It needs to be covered basically in, if it's outdoor. Is that the solution, so off-grid power generation for the charging stations and then having some kind of storage to, to manage that on the off-peak hours? Yeah. Or is it no more on-grid connecting to the electricity itself? We just need to get our power wherever we can get it from, right? <laughs> so if it's going to be like putting a cover over a, a parking lot, go for it. Why, why not? It's wasted space anyway. Yeah. We just need to create a bunch of chargers <laughs> and power them with renewables. And you're and right, it- in any way possible. It means there's going to be a big increased demand Hopefully at the same time, we're implementing energy efficiency and having this big build out of renewables. It's all going in the right direction. But yeah, the sequencing isn't super easy to get right. Right. Yeah. You're not a fan of on-grid or nothing for solar PV and renewables in general? I mean, no, yeah. The grid is there because it's like a shared resource. And the whole benefit of the grid is that the more players there are, the less careful you need to be about mm. immediately matching up supply and demand. Operating a grid's hard, and the only reason it works is because there are tens of millions of people on the same system, and you can anticipate when someone as a whole is going to turn on the lights and turn on the TV and their kettle and stuff like that. Then when industry is going to ramp up and down, and all the things that use electricity can be mapped out and averaged out, and then you can plan for generation to come online at the exact same moment as demand is taking that generation off the grid. That's how it works. So you need to, in real time, balance like everyone turning on their light with a power plant scaling up its supply. When you want an off-grid system, you need to integrate a lot of battery storage because you can't exactly match supply and demand. The sun isn't only shining when you want to turn on your kettle, right? So you need a battery to manage that. Having a bunch of small batteries I suppose is good for system resilience, but it's expensive because yeah. everyone has to buy a little battery and there are no economies of scale there. But we're looking at a very different type of grid. We're looking at a much more decentralized, digitized, mm. decarbonized grid. It's not the old system where you have literally like right. 30 power plants in the whole of the UK and that's what powers the whole country. Now you've got thousands and thousands of power plants, some of them a few kilowatts in size on someone's rooftop, some of them megawatts in, in size and a That's field. a good point. So I think that the grid itself needs to catch up, obviously, if it hasn't in certain countries, but if it's there, then it can handle that load. Yeah. And it's a very different way of operating a grid. You can no longer instruct supply to come online when you need it. You have to deal with the supply when it comes, when the sun shines or when the wind blows. You can restrict that supply, but you can't turn it on. So that's where all this demand response that I mentioned before, Mm. like operating fridges and stuff like that remotely, allows these new tools to be used by grid operators. And that's how we need to create this more flexible, dynamic system where maybe demand can follow supply instead of supply following demand. That's a 
That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Okay. Let's go back. We were talking about transportation. You talked about sin fuel. Is that the same as sustainable aviation fuel or is it different? Yeah. There. So sin fuels are a sustainable aviation fuel. They're a type of it, but not... Okay. That's right. Gotcha. Sustainable aviation fuel could also include things like biofuel from used cooking oil, for example. Mm-hmm. So those can all be made into sustainable aviation fuels. Yeah, they're a little bit different. What's the future for aviation. I mean, we're not going to stop using planes. I think everyone can agree on that. Is it going to be hydrogen? Is it going to be a combination of hydrogen and some of the other things? Is Sinfuel or... I know that Etihad Airways, for example, had a couple of really cool projects where they were trying to use biofuel. They managed to make a a couple of planes work with it. But scaling that up to the entire fleet, when you're talking about huge fleets of aircraft, and not even for passenger travel, but for logistics, for supply chain and cargo, it's... Not going to happen. So what's the... You need something that's going to be able to use the systems that are there, right? That's what you were getting at as well. Exactly. So, yeah, I think using used cooking oil and so on as waste recycling, essentially, great. That's great. But the scale is nowhere close. And to do straight biofuels, I think, is also dangerous in some ways because (laughs) (laughs) we can't just grow all these palm oil trees or something, right? right. And sometimes it works, sometimes it it doesn't. I think the only real solution there that I so far understand is is to use um, synthetic fuels. So it Mm -hmm. combines hydrogen made from a clean source, low carbon hydrogen, with um, captured CO2. And you can combine those two things to make kerosene, essentially jet fuel, and then burn that. It's like the circular carbon economy concept. It's very well thought out Actually, better thought out than I expected. Concept, there's a lot of work being done at CAPSARC, King Abdullah's Petroleum Studies and Research Center. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done a lot of thinking into creating a circular carbon economy index and really looking into the circular carbon economy question. And at first blush, it can seem like a greenwashing kind of thing. But when you look into the detail and rigor that they've put into it, it's a very interesting concept. Anyway, I think the point of mentioning that is because it Sinfuels reflects one of these carbon reuse options where you can take CO2 that's otherwise going into the atmosphere and reuse it in a circular way. So yeah, I think that's going to be the ultimate destination for aviation is using sin fuels to power. Using hydrogen directly, it's not powerful enough. Um, You need to mix it with something. Yeah. And to contain hydrogen, you need high pressures and basically making a plane with the materials that would keep hydrogen at pressure the materials are heavy, so it makes the plane too heavy. Um, what about hydrogen-powered, I don't want to say Hindenburg, <laughs> but <laughs> what do you call those things again? A blimp. Or, yeah. Blimps, yeah. What about blimps? A dirigible. Yeah, but they use them in, they're starting to use them in places that are hard to access with no runway. Right. So making cargo lifts to very northern remote countries or just remote places where you don't have a runway, you can just float up and down. <laughs> it's a kind of neat idea. It's pretty niche. They're pretty slow. Yeah, they're pretty niche and slow. But with the right application or for the right use case, it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Before we wrap up, I want to talk about one last thing, which is atmospheric carbon removal. Mm. It's one of those things that some people I've spoken to hate the even the mentioning of it. And some people say, yeah, you know what? It's a it's like a tiny cherry on top of the icing, on top of the cake. <laughs> What's your thoughts on it? And maybe just give a kind of brief description of what it is, if, it, if it's even realistic, if it's going to make a difference, and if the technology is going to catch up in the long term. Yeah. So atmospheric carbon dioxide removal is all about taking out some of the CO2 from the air. Is it realistic? Yeah, it happens all the time, right? When a forest, when a tree grows, right. that's atmospheric CO2 removal. There's eight 
different ways you can remove CO2 from the atmosphere. They come in four different flavors. So one is enhanced weathering. Another one is photosynthesis and mm-hmm. biological removal. A third is photosynthesis and conversion. And a fourth one is chemical. The first one, enhanced weathering, there are two options here. And one of them is enhancing the alkalinity of the ocean. The ocean captures a lot of CO2 already, and it dissolves in the ocean, making the ocean more acidic, which is dangerous for a lot of reasons. It makes shells dissolve and can disrupt the food chain in the ocean because crustaceans couldn't. When you say ocean, you're not talking about the algae, right? You're talking about the ocean itself. Yeah, the water itself. Right. Yeah, it absorbs CO2. It turns it into an acid. You can enhance the alkalinity of the ocean by putting kind of a calcium carbonate in the ocean, essentially, and that makes it more basic and creates a reaction where the ocean can then absorb more CO2. Is that realistic or is that like putting an ice cube in the ocean to reduce global warming kind of thing? Yeah, uh, done at massive scale, it could actually have an impact, a huge impact, and it's a high permanent solution. The cost is also not uh, totally outrageous, Okay, but it's basically geoengineering in a way, and that's dicey. Yeah. There's another way for enhanced weathering called CO2 mineralization. When CO2 encounters peridotite rock, it can react with the rock and form a mineral, which is a permanent sequestration of that carbon in a mineral form. You can also inject CO2 into geothermal areas, and it can mineralize underground as well and create like a rock underground. So those are both enhanced weathering. They're decently cheap, between like $20 and like $160 per tonne. It's not the best, uh, and it has a lot of challenges, but there are options. The other ones are, are like photosynthetic and biological storage. So growing plants, growing forests, growing plants underwater, essentially. So taking CO2 out of the atmosphere that way. The options are cheap. The chance of permanence, like making sure it definitely stores CO2 for a long time, is pretty low. So forests can burn down, soil can be tilled, things can eat plants in the oceans. Is it super long-term? Not necessarily. Are there... Benefits that go beyond just CO2, yeah, for sure. You can grow more forests. It has a biodiversity opportunity. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a lot of talk about forests on the Amazon, obviously, but it's the algae in the water that's, I think, something like 70% of the carbon dioxide that's captured from the atmosphere, right? Is, Is that around... Maybe the number is not exactly right, but that's something like that, right? It's a lot, yeah. I've never heard of anyone talk about planting algae. Yeah. What's the reason? Is it because the ecosystem would be damaged because of it or how does that work? I think it's a scale thing. So Mm. like the ocean's giant, right? And algae, it's like just a weed that almost grows in the water. Yeah. There's a limiting factor there typically around the nutrients that go into those plants. Mm. One way of stimulating the growth of those plants is to add iron filings essentially into the ocean, which can stimulate the growth of Algae. And you can't plant it, right? No, it just floats around. So you can't just plant it. Good question, though. Yeah. No, because I really, and honestly, it's one of those things that I don't know enough about, but it's biology. So it's yeah, way out of my remit. It's <laughs> out of my remit, too, to be honest. I'm speaking without knowing a ton about this. <laughs> my understanding is that the limiting factor is, is like the nutrients of, mm-hmm. in the water. And when you have like algae blooms, which are bad, actually, it tends to be a result of nitrogen from fertilizer going into water streams yeah, and going into yeah. the ocean. And that can take away all the oxygen and kill in the in the ocean because there's no oxygen left. So algae is good for CO2 removal, but has these other implications as well. The other one's photosynthesis and conversion. So you can grow plants and then turn them into biochar. So you can heat them up and it becomes like charcoal, essentially. You can then spread that charcoal on farmland and make it more enhance the richness of the soil. Mm-hmm. And it stores CO2 for like 100 years. Or you can burn that 
wood in a power plant and capture and sequester the emissions. And that means you're taking CO2 from the atmosphere into the wood and then sequestering the smoke and getting the CO2 out of the atmosphere that way. So that's called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, BEX. That sounds so complicated. There's a one in the UK called Drax. It's a big coal plant that's been converted into a mm. plant that burns wood pellets. For me, the overall carbon impact of that is a little bit questionable. The last one that everyone is interested in is chemical removal, so direct air capture, where you use fans and different sorbents, essentially, to remove CO2 directly from the ambient air, put it into either a solid or a liquid sorbent or solvent, and then remove that CO2 in a controlled place where you can capture it and then stick it underground. <laughs> this is the big one that's in Switzerland and Iceland. These are big fans that force air through. They hit these sorbents, and CO2 is captured that way. It's super expensive. It's mm -hmm. like $250 to $600 a ton, I think. It requires carbon capture or carbon sequestration geology. And the economies of scale aren't great, right? I don't, I don't, it's not like the technology is going to catch up eventually. I don't foresee this cost dropping significantly because the investment, even if the investment came in, I don't see it coming down, but the investment's yeah. not going to be there, right? I see this as being one of these long-term things where like when we get to 2050 and the mm -hmm. CO2 concentration in the atmosphere has sadly gone up too far, but we we're just not producing kind of, so much anymore. Yeah, we've managed to maybe reduce to net zero, but we've just overshot our situation. Mm -hmm. I see this as being something that just slowly removes CO2 from the atmosphere over centuries, and we try and get back to the 270 parts per million that we were at when I was born. And <laughs> hopefully the, the world doesn't end by right that. Now. Yeah, exactly. So I see it more as a long-term solution. Okay. Yeah. So not so much pie in the sky, but not really... Just the icing on the cake, right? Yeah, that's right. Icing on the icing on I don't know. Icing's pretty delicious, and, <laughs> and these aren't the best uh, the best solutions. Okay. <laughs> so. We talked a lot about the hardware. AI is just becoming such a big thing, and yeah, AI is a huge opportunity for it's just disrupting everything right now, right? And I think we're seeing this in every different sector. Mm -hmm. A lot of things are becoming a lot more digitized, and I think that's going to be the way of the future. When you talk about grid management, even just transport, if you're talking about self-driving cars. There's a huge amount that AI is going to do. And I think also in terms of technology breakthroughs, once we get to a more generalized AI that can support with material science and strategy and other things, right. that, like we're just going to see a huge amount of advancement across all different fields. Yeah, we're limited, I think, technically by a lot of material science, actually. That's like in batteries and so on. That's a big issue. And yeah, if AI can figure out ways to help with that would be great if they can like do maybe bacterial genetics or who knows program a, a tree to grow faster who knows what ai is going to be able to do yeah like nano manufacturing could do some of the stuff you're talking about yeah totally or just change industrial processes that we didn't like in unexpected ways i think there's a huge potential for ai i think when we look back at this time and when we hear ourselves talk about ai in 10 years time It'll be like when we hear people talking about the internet in 1995. Right, Can right. you imagine if we're sending an email? What is email? Tell me about that, Wolf. It's it just it seems absurd almost to hear somebody talking about the internet in the 1990s from today's position. Yeah, yeah. I think that we're probably going to feel the same way when we listen to this podcast in 2035. <laughs> like, oh my god. <laughs> I don't think I don't think podcasts will still work by then. But <laughs> thanks for keeping us relevant. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring it back. <laughs>
Okay. Yeah, I think we're all quite ignorant about what's going to happen. Yeah. Or at least I am. I think most people are either afraid of it or it's going to it's going to disrupt everything either way, no matter what happens. Yeah. Okay, any last thoughts before we wrap up? I think we covered a lot. Just the urgency. So if anyone's listening to this that's thinking we can delay, we can't. We need to really do this right right away, really fast. Mm-hmm. And we need to do it in every sector, across every country. This is the biggest, in my opinion, priority of our time. It's existential, and we need to really just sort it out. Yeah, so please act. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Fair enough. No worries. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. It was an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for your time. It was a great conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.